Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 107. This show is entitled The Strange Mystery of St. Germain, The Immortal Count. There are perhaps no other categories of true paranormal stories that readers find scarier than experiences with the Ouija board. Let's face it, it has a frightening reputation, whether you believe the stories or not. And maybe it's because it's such a common occult item. Who amongst us has not experimented with the board at one time or another and had strange results? The results the readers experienced in the tales that follow are perhaps stranger than most. Are they true? Partly true? Exaggerated or entirely fabricated to give you just a good scare? I'll leave that judgment up to you, but I'll bet in any case that they'll make you think twice before you ever again rest your fingers on the Ouija planchette. From the paranormal.about.com website Tales of the Ouija And this is written by Stephen Wagner. A message from Mum. This happened during the early weeks of June 2012 in the Pocono, Pennsylvania. Every summer break I would visit my best friend Nicole, who I've known since the sixth grade. This summer visit had been, to say the least, the most unusual. As soon as I arrived at her house... She explained to me that she and her father had gone to a flea market and she found a cheap Ouija board that she would love to try out later that night. Me, being a believer in aliens, spirits, ghosts, etc., I was a bit scared to try it. In the back of my mind, I knew that this was not a good idea. But not wanting to ruin her fun or seem like a scaredy cat, I agreed to it. As night came, Nicole and I were lounging around until she asked me if I would like to try the Ouija board. She placed eight ten-lit candles in an oval around the Ouija board and told me to sit across from her. We placed the Ouija board between us, resting in our laps with our fingers pressed lightly on the planchette. I was a bit nervous. I'll be honest. I just didn't know what to expect. Nicole was more excited about this than I was, so she did most of the talking, asking questions like, Ouija, are you there? Ouija, are you with us? Nothing out of the ordinary seemed to be happening, which relaxed me slightly. My friend continued this approach for about ten minutes before getting a bit frustrated and deciding that we had to be doing something wrong since nothing was happening. She looked online for more directions on how to correctly use the Ouija board, and it turns out we had to hold the planchette a specific way. We did as instructed, and my friend continued her questioning. Ouija, are you there? Ouija, are you with us? Now here's where it gets weird. We started to hear noises. A distant cry could be heard. I wrote it off, thinking it could have just been the TV going on in another room. Then the curtains on her windows started to rustle. The wind, I would say. But her windows weren't open, and her air conditioning wasn't on. Then a floorboard creaked. Okay, I thought, these are just coincidences. Then the candle to the right of me started to flicker. But just one candle. Nicole and I looked around in confusion at all the other candles. But only one flickered. Its shadow would dim and grow, dim and grow, dim and grow, until its shadow grew to an unusually big circle. Nicole continued, Ouija, are you there? All of a sudden the planchette moved. We looked up at each other wide-eyed. Ouija, are you with us? Nicole asked again, and the planchette moved slowly but surely to yes. Ouija, how did you die? 
It didn't answer. How did you die? Did you die in a fire, Ouija? This time the planchette moved to no. Are you a good spirit or a bad spirit? It moved to no. Finally, Nicole asked, Ouija, who are you? Slowly, the planchette spelled out M-O-M in precise and sure movements. I remember choking out, Mum? I began to cry. My mum died when I turned eight, two weeks after my birthday on July the 31st, 2004, from a freak accident while on a hiking trip with friends. She was only 44 years old. This certainly was not my friend moving the planchette. Never in a million years would she play such a cruel prank on me. She asked me if I wanted to stop, but I told her no. I wanted to see what my mum wanted. This time I asked the questions, while my subdued and shocked friend watched. Mum, is that you? Yes, the planchette moved. I cried. How old were you when you died? It moved towards the four and stayed there. How old was I? It pointed to the eight. How old was Christian when you died? Christian is my little brother, four years younger than I. The planchette moved to the four. She answered all I needed to know. Even Nicole hadn't known when my mother died or how old she was, or even how old I was. I rarely ever talk about it. Then I started rambling. Mum, I miss you so much. I love you so much. I miss you. Things haven't been the same. I was a mess. I asked, Do you miss me, Mum? It moved to yes. I could just feel how much she meant it. It made my heart break. I asked her if she loved me and the planchette stayed at yes. I know these are silly questions to ask, but I really wanted to hear them. I missed her so much. I don't remember how long she had been there, but I remember her saying goodbye. Afterwards, I felt relief. It felt like a weight I didn't even know was there was lifted off my shoulders. I felt that she had been trying to contact me this whole time and finally got to. I had not talked to her since, but I will never forget that experience for as long as I live. Nicole and I have only talked of it once after that, but never again. I am just grateful for the experience. I do not advise anyone to try it, though because I was lucky enough to just have my mum contact me. You can never be too sure with Ouija boards. Be very careful if you ever use one. And that was submitted by Shannon C. Ouija's Creepy Direction It was a Friday evening in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, around 1997. Two of my friends and I were playing the Ouija board, as teens usually do at a sleepover. We asked the board to give us some proof that its powers are real, or something to that effect. The pointer spelled out TV8PCP. We ran into the living room and turned on the TV, which was already set to Channel 8. Playing was the movie Desperate Lives, at the part when Helen Hunt takes PCP and jumps out of a second story window. It was kind of creepy. The board wanted us to see that. We refused to play any more that night. With much certainty, I felt this to be a genuine encounter with a Ouija entity or something of the sort. I wish I was creative enough to make this up. Realistically, what is the possibility a bunch of 13-year-old kids had the ability to execute such a hoax on me? suggest playing the board, asking that question, to then turn on the TV at the exact moment in the movie. With today's technology it may be possible, but not so much in 1997. I have tried to find a logical explanation and coincidence is one possibility. I can't seem to shake it off or explain it after all these years. I've never felt comfortable or any good energy whenever faced with a Ouija board and I always felt a watching eye on me the times I did. Not a good eye, either. Part of me wonders what would have happened if we continued using it that night. We were probably fortunate we didn't take it any further. And that was submitted by Izzy N. Ouija proves itself. This happened to me when I was roughly 15. 
that age when you're curious and willing to try new things. My friend was the same, and both being quite young and naive, we attempted a Ouija board. I was living with my mother at the time, and we waited until she was fast asleep. We lit candles to form a circle around us. We didn't have an actual board, so we just used a piece of cardboard and a glass cup. Nothing scary or out of the ordinary happened while we were doing this. At first, we asked questions. We got answers. We laughed about it, mostly, and it became quite boring, to be honest. But then I did something most websites strongly advise you not to do. I said to the Ouija, prove yourself. My friend got quite scared and took her fingers straight off the glass cup. I laughed a little and told her she was being silly, that it was just a game. No sooner I said this than every single candle around us went out instantly. There was no wind to make this happen. And if it had just been one, it wouldn't have mattered. But ten of them went out at the exact same time? I must admit I was quite scared and bolted for my bedroom light. We called it a night and spent the rest of the night with the light on, telling jokes until we eventually fell asleep. It was a few days later that the weirder stuff started happening. My stereo turned itself on one morning while everyone was still sleeping, volume to the max. My mother had teacups on display, hanging by hooks in a cupboard. We both sat at the kitchen table one day and one started swinging by itself, then another and another, until all of them were swinging. They picked up an extreme pace to the point where we thought they were going to swing off their hooks. Then all of them came to a complete halt at once. I have a fear of spiders, and after that Ouija incident, they seem to be everywhere for weeks. Not just one in a room at each time, but many, especially in my bedroom. I pulled back my quilt cover one night getting ready for bed and two spiders were crawling there in plain view. A few days later I felt something in my towel. Yep, a spider. Luckily it never bit me. Until we moved out of that house a few years later, I could hear muffled talking every night coming from outside of my bedroom. I'd walk out there expecting to find my mother on the phone or watching TV. It was always pitch black. But as soon as I lay in bed again, the muffled talking would resume. I put it down to my imagination, but ruled that out when eventually the muffled sounds started coming from inside of my wardrobe. Whether you believe me or not, this is 100% true. And one thing is for sure. Whatever we were talking to that night definitely proved itself to me. And that was submitted by Rihanna T. Birthday party nightmare. Though I always seem to be somewhat comfortable with the occult, especially as a teenager, I still feel lingering moments of fear that mirrored the same intensity as when I first experienced them at my 14th birthday party sleepover. I had my closest girlfriends over, one who I'll refer to as Kelsey, who sparked my insatiable interest in provoking paranormal encounters. Looking back now, I realise how irresponsible my lack of respect for the dead was, but hindsight is always twenty-twenty. It was a typical hot, humid Florida day that turned into a typical warm, sweet Florida night. My two older brothers were at friends' houses for the night, so that my eight teenage friends and I could enact some good old-fashioned mischief, as would only be expected of us. Well, we went through the usual itinerary of truth or dare light as a feather, stiff as a board, and Manny Pettis, and we hadn't even reached 11pm. With our sugar highs fading fast from boredom, we threw suggestion after suggestion out, only for each to be shot down by the majority. Fearing my guests would give poor reviews of my first real birthday party, I dove into my collection of toys of the occult. Now I have to preface the rest of the story with a side story. My mother refused to allow Ouija boards in her house because of some traumatic experience she had with one when she was my age. Apparently it was so damaging that she still to this day will not tell me what happened. You have to know my mother to understand the degree of horror it takes to shake her otherwise solid foundation. Seriously, the woman is 99.9% of the time unscarable. 
my aunt, her baby sister, who obviously knows about her objection to Ouija boards, but also knew and understood my curiosity for the paranormal, hid my mother's personal childhood Ouija board in a box with a decoy birthday present to me on top to hide it from my mum. Later that night, I pulled the Ouija from its hiding place and began my dance with the devil. Kelsey, who shared my interest in ghosts, spirits and the paranormal, insisted on practising a set of chants she'd come across in one of her books of Wicca. She was obsessed with the idea of Wicca and communicating with past souls. Being as it was my present, naturally, I demanded being the first. We sat in my living room in a circle, the Ouija board in front of me. We lit some ceremonial candles and shut off all the lights. Before I set hand on the planchette, we joined hands and closed our eyes as Kelsey began chanting ominously eerie verses. Within moments, I began an almost playful conversation with a spirit who named himself David. But after a few minutes, his demeanour changed from playful to insulted after Kelsey asked a question that he evidently found insulting. He abruptly said goodbye, and suddenly the planchette flew from under my fingertips as if someone kicked it from under my hands. Once David spoke his last word and flung the planchette across my living room, a loud crash came from within my bedroom, which I had locked so no one could screw with me. We all flinched, momentarily paralysed with fear, then bolted to find an explanation of the disturbance. I unlocked my door, and with all eight of the girls crouching behind me, I slowly opened my door to see nothing out of the ordinary until I saw what looked like white sand and small pieces of debris on my black comforter. It was dust and pieces of popcorn from my ceiling. We have popcorn ceilings in our house. I looked up because I immediately recognised what it was and sure enough, we found the culprit. Something shining, silvery, the size of a Kennedy half dollar, but rectangular, was stuck in my ceiling. And when I say stuck, I mean there had to have been some force behind its propulsion because it was lodged about three-fourths of the way into the ceiling. Suddenly, all of us felt a freezing cold breeze. Too cold to have been our air conditioning because it had just moments before been turned off because we didn't want the breeze to blow out Kelsey's candles. I felt a sense of panic like I'd never felt before, but somehow I was able to remove the object When I examined the piece of silver, I immediately recognised the picture engraved into one side of it. It was an iconic depiction of Santa Maria, but with one of the most horrifying alterations I could ever begin to conjure in my worst nightmares. Her praying hands were but bone and torn flesh. Half of her face was normal, the other half completely stripped of skin as a skeleton, and the crucifix hanging from her decaying hands was an inverted cross. I never felt more like I was surrounded by evil than while I held a charm in my hand. My guests, petrified but curious, inquired about what it was and wanted to see it, but I couldn't bring myself to reveal the satanic charm. So I slipped it into my pocket and told them it must be something that fell from the attic to my ceiling, as the attic was above my room and had no flooring. Unsatisfied with the anticlimactic explanation, they shook off their suspense and herded to the fridge for snacks. The next afternoon, after the last guest had left, I pulled my mum aside to show her the charm. I laid it flat in my hand and suddenly her eyes widened so much I thought her eyes were going to fall right out of their sockets. She covered her mouth with one hand and began sobbing uncontrollably. My dad rushed to her side and she buried her face into his shoulder. He asked what was wrong. My mum bolted to her feet, grabbed the charm, snatched her car keys and peeled out of our neighbourhood. She was gone for almost six hours. When she came home, She grabbed me by my shoulders and told me to burn the Ouija board and to never bring the charm up ever again. She slipped and said that if I ever did something like that again, she couldn't be here if David comes back into her life after all she's done to get rid of him. She never explained what she meant by that, but every now and then I hear a dull rumbling wheezing from the air vents in my room. I don't know who or what David is. 
but I fear he's snaked into my life now. And that was submitted by Kathy Kay. Not many people working in the film industry are aware of a 1930s Hollywood actor-turned-agent named Marty Martin. So it's rather baffling that a ten-year-old Ryan is familiar with the man's life and work. In fact, Ryan is able to recount vivid and stunningly accurate descriptions of the actor and the era he lived in, even those that have never been documented and he's able to do so because he claims to be the incarnation of Martin himself. From the OddityCentral.com, a story by Sumitra. A ten-year-old boy claims he is the reincarnation of a 1930s Hollywood actor. Ryan, who lives in Muskogee, Oklahoma, was born to Baptist parents in 2005. When he was only four years old, he started having nightmares that his parents had no idea how to stop. He would often talk about his heart exploding and of Hollywood, a place that is several thousands of miles away from Oklahoma. According to Ryan's mum, Cindy, he would always talk in a matter-of-fact manner during these incidents. After a year, Cindy said that Ryan confided to her about his reincarnation. He said, Mum? I have something I need to tell you. I used to be somebody else, he said. Being a Baptist, Cindy's first reaction was to deny everything and hide it from her husband. But she slowly became curious as Ryan revealed more details of his past, especially because he would cry and beg for his mum to take him home. His stories were so detailed and extensive that it just wasn't like a child could have made it up, Cindy said. Ryan spoke at length about Hollywood, his five marriages, vacations in Europe, his old houses and his career as an agent and actor. In an attempt to understand what he was talking about, Cindy checked out books about Hollywood from the library and showed them to her son. And that's how they had a breakthrough. When Ryan happened to see a still in one of his books from the 1932 movie Night After Night starring Mae West, "'That's me,' he said to his mother." He was pointing to an extra in the film. The family later found out that the man in the picture was a bit actor-turned-agent, Marty Martin. Armed with a face to match Ryan's bizarre memories, Cindy gathered the strength to approach a professional for help. Ryan is now seeing Dr Jim Tucker, a highly respected child psychiatrist from the University of Virginia, with experience in studying children who claim to remember past lives. These cases demand an explanation, Tucker said. We can't just write them off or explain them away as just some sort of normal cultural thing. Although he's dealt with thousands of such cases, Dr Tucker said that there's something very different and special about Ryan. He says that the boy's incredibly detailed descriptions and accurate claims that have matched up with Martin's life are truly remarkable. If you look at a picture of a guy with no lines in a movie and then tell me about his life, I don't think many of us would have come up with Marty Martin's life, Tucker said. Yet Ryan provided many details that really did fit with his life. With the help of Dr Tucker, Ryan's parents have reached out to a film archivist who put them in touch with one of Martin's daughters. And when they spoke to her, it turned out that all of Ryan's stories checked out. Fifty-five of his statements matched up perfectly with Martin's life. The boy was able to accurately name the street he lived on and the names of his children, siblings and ex-wives. 
The most shocking revelations came later, when Ryan told Dr. Tucker during a session that he wondered why God had him die at 61 years old, only to be reincarnated as a baby. This clashed with the official records. Martin's death report stated that he was 59 when he died. But then Dr. Tucker looked through old census reports and discovered that the certificate was incorrect, not Ryan. As he grows older, Ryan's memories of Martin are beginning to fade. But Dr. Tucker has managed to chronicle everything that the boy has spoken about his past life. The complete story is part of a book on two and a half thousand cases he has studied over the years called Return to Life. And if you're interested, visit the show notes at www.origins.info. Click on the link to episode 107 of the Mysteries Abound podcast and then on the link to this article. There's a photograph of Ryan, a photograph of Marty Martin and a bit of a video from the Today Show showing him on television with his claims. From the Smithsonian.com Why the story of Cinderella endures and resonates By James Deutsch On Friday the 13th of March, as Walt Disney Pictures released its third Cinderella, one has to wonder why yet another. There is no scarcity of Cinderella tales, Folklorists have identified more than 700 different variants around the world. How to explain the popularity of this humble heroine who marries her handsome prince in spite of her treacherous stepsisters and abusive stepmother? For Disney, the story has paid off, with three Academy Award nominations and a place in the American Film Institute's Top 10 Animation List, Disney's first Cinderella venture, a 1950 feature-length animated film was a box office success. The studio's second was the award-winning 1997 television adaptation of the Rodgers and Hammerstein's Julie Andrews musical that aired on live television in 1957. 60 million viewers tuned in and the show won acclaim for its diverse cast. Brandy Norwood as Cinderella, Whitney Houston as a fairy godmother and Whoopi Goldberg as Queen Constantina. More recently, Disney distilled yet another crowd-pleasing Cinderella, this time with Anna Kendrick in the role 
as a part of a mashup of fairy tales in the adaptation of Stephen Sondheim's Tony Award-winning musical Into the Woods. And now Disney presents a new live-action spectacle, nearly two hours in length and directed by Kenneth Branagh, best known for directing cinematic versions of Shakespeare's plays, including Henry V, Hamlet and the wildly popular film Thor, the Marvel Comics superhero. Dozens of other filmmakers have borrowed elements of the tale, starting as early as 1899 with a French version directed by the pioneering filmmaker Georges Millier. And perhaps the best known is the 1990 Pretty Woman, a retelling of both Cinderella and George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, starring Julia Roberts as Vivian, who is magically transformed from rags to riches. The appeal of Cinderella extends not only to filmmakers but also to folklorists and early collectors of folktales, such as the brothers Grimm, Jacob and Wilhelm, who included the story of Aschenputtel, Ashgirl, in their well-known German collection Kinder und Hausmaschen, Children and Household Tales, first published in 1812. Charles Perrault included a similar tale even earlier, under the title of Cendrillon, Cinderella, in his collection of French tales. Stories or Tales from Time Past with Morals, Tales of Mother Goose, first published in 1697. Going back even further, folklorists have traced the story to 9th century China, in which Ye Shen overcomes an evil stepmother, thanks to a golden slipper that transforms her rags to beautiful clothes and enables her to marry a wealthy king. Variation is one of the defining characteristics of folklore, especially folk tales, because the story may change slightly with each retelling. However, some folkloric elements remain relatively constant, such as the standard opening of a fairy tale, whether it be once upon a time in English, es war animal in German, il était un roi French, habillé un vers Spanish, sera un volta Italian, etc., all of which set the story in some vaguely distant past time. But Cinderella seems to resonate particularly well in the United States. Here's why. The tale's appeal is surely its upbeat ending. Cinderella and her prince live happily forever after, a rags-to-riches story. Even if Cinderella herself is of noble origin, as in some of the earliest versions... She is able to rise out of ashes and cinders to achieve a position of wealth and stature. This is the same basic story that fuels what some call the American dream, a belief that you too will rise to the top because you have the requisite pluck and just need a little luck, such as a pumpkin coach or a prince who finds you at long last with your glass slipper in his benevolent hand. This belief is reinforced by actual rags-to-riches cases, from Benjamin Franklin and Abraham Lincoln to Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey and, yes, even Walt Disney himself. Similarly, the story of Cinderella tells us that virtue is rewarded and evil is punished. You rightly deserve your prince or princess, just as the United States deserves its preeminence, or so most Americans believe. Conversely, the evil stepsisters who cut off parts of their feet in vain attempts to cheat the slipper test deserve to be sternly and righteously punished for their treacherous behaviour. In some versions of the story, birds peck out the stepsisters' eyes to render them blind as an even sterner punishment. One corollary to this theme holds that the line between good and evil is clearly demarcated with little ambiguity between the two. Not only is virtue rewarded, so too is action. Cinderella is not a passive wimp who simply wishes upon a star. She makes things happen through her fortitude, perseverance and wise decisions, albeit with some help from a magical fairy godmother. In similar fashion, Americans regard themselves as can-do people who take the bull by the horns, not letting the grass grow under their boots on the ground. By the way, all of those proverbial expressions are wonderful illustrations of folklore at work in the contemporary world. If only real life were so predictable. But that's precisely the appeal of Cinderella and her ilk. Once upon a time.
Whether it was a druid temple, an astronomical calendar or a centre for healing, the mystery of Stonehenge has sparked endless debate over the centuries. Now a dramatic new theory suggests that the prehistoric Stone Circle monument was in fact an ancient mecca on stilts. The megaliths would not have been used for ceremonies at ground level, but would instead have supported a wooden platform on which ceremonies were performed to the rotating heavens, according to new research. From the dailymail.co.uk Was Stonehenge a mecca on stilts? A structure supported a wooden platform to get closer to the heavens, claims an expert. And this is written by Dahlia Alberge. Julian Spaulding, former director of some of the UK's leading museums, argues that the stones were foundations for a vast platform, long since lost, a great altar raised up high towards the heavens and able to take the weight of hundreds of worshippers. It's a totally different theory which has never been put forward before, he said. All the interpretations to date could be mistaken. We've been looking at Stonehenge the wrong way, from the earth, which is very much a 20th century viewpoint. We haven't been thinking about what they were thinking about. Part of his evidence lies in ancient civilizations worldwide, as far afield as China, Peru, Turkey. Such sacred monuments were built up high, whether on man-made or natural sites, and with circular patterns possibly linked to celestial movements. In early times, no spiritual ceremonies would have been performed on the ground, said Mr Spaulding. The pharaoh of Egypt and the emperor of China were always carried, as the Pope used to be. The feet of holy people were not allowed to touch the ground. We've been looking at Stonehenge from a modern, earthbound perspective. All the great raised altars of the past suggest that the people who built Stonehenge would never have performed celestial ceremonies on the lowly earth. That would have been unimaginably insulting to the immortal beings, for it would have brought them down from heaven to bite the dust and tread in the dung. However, he says the wood that would have been used for the platform has long since rotted away, leaving only the stone pillars that support it behind. Mr Spaulding's museum directorships include Glasgow, which boasts world-class archaeological collections within a complex of institutions that exceed the British Museum in size. Today he published his theories in a new book titled Realisation, From Seeing to Understanding, The Origins of Art, published by Wilmington Square Books. It explores our ancestors' understanding of the world, offering new explanations of iconic works of art and monuments. Stonehenge, built in stages between 3000 and 2000 BC, is England's most famous prehistoric monument, a UNESCO World Heritage Site on Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire that draws more than one million annual visitors. It began as a timber circle, later made permanent with massive blocks of stone, many somehow dragged from Dolorite Rock in the Welsh mountains. Dolorite has a bluish tinge and is dappled with white spots that look like stars, according to Mr Spaulding. These megaliths, weighing between two and four tonnes each, were transported 250 miles, an extraordinary achievement in those times, which indicates that building Stonehenge was a massive communal enterprise, he said. He believes that ancient worshippers would have reached the giant altar by climbing curved wooden ramps or staircases, moving in the direction of the slowly circulating stars for ceremonies dedicated to, for example, a dead king's soul or midsummer and solstice celebrations. His theories have been shaped by visits to ancient sites like stone circles of Gobekli Tepe in southern Turkey, reminiscent of Stonehenge, but predating it by around 6,000 years. Only a fraction of the site has been excavated, and the purpose of its T-shaped pillars is still a mystery, Spaulding said. These must have supported some sort of raised platform. He also points to the Nazca lines in Peru, vast drawings apparently etched into Earth's surface more than 2,000 years ago, onto a high natural plateau above the villages where they lived. They went up to this sacred place. These lines were a processional way, which followed the movement and shape of the stars. 
The great mystery of early man was that we all thought the world was flat. Everyone did until very recent times. All the major religious ceremonies, as the Hajj still does in Mecca, always end in a circular motion, going round and round, which imitates the stars. Professor Vincent Gaffney, Principal Investigator on the Stonehenge Hidden Landscapes Project at Bradford University, responded with a fair degree of scepticism. He said, At Stonehenge there are other structures which are clearly designed to be viewed from the ground, along astronomic alignments, and you can see the sky from pretty much everywhere. Sir Barry Cunliffe, a prehistorian and emeritus professor of European archaeology, Oxford University, said, He could be right, but I know of no evidence to support it. There are a large number of stone circles around the country which clearly didn't have a platform on top, so why should Stonehenge? But Aubrey Burl, an authority on prehistoric stone circles, said, There could be something in it. There is a possibility, of course. Anything new and worthwhile about Stonehenge is well worth looking into, but with care and consideration. Mr. Spaulding is fully expecting resistance from fellow academics. He draws parallels with the 1868 discovery of magnificent prehistoric ceiling paintings in the Altamira cave in Spain by a geologist and archaeologist. He went in there and looked on the ground because he assumed all the evidence for early man would be on the ground, he said. It never occurred to him to look up. It was his young daughter who said, Papa, look on the ceiling. Experts at the time denounced those paintings as forgeries. It was not until the end of the 19th century that they were accepted as genuine. And if you'd like to know a bit more, visit the show notes. There are some drawings, diagrams, a video and some photographs accompanying the article. Just visit them at the show notes. Mermaids have occupied our imagination for thousands of years. Originating in ancient Assyria with the legend of goddess Atagatis, whose worship spread to Greece and Rome. In one account, Atagatis transforms herself into half-human, half-fish, being out of shame for accidentally killing her human lover. However, in other accounts, Atagatis is a goddess of fertility, who was associated with a fish-bodied goddess at Ascalon. It is thought that worship of Atagatis and Ascalon eventually merged into one, leading to the description of one mermaid goddess. From the ancientorigins.net website Are tales of mystical mermaids inspired by a real-life medical condition? And it's written by April Holloway. In history, mermaids have been connected with hazardous events in European, African and Asian culture, including floods, storms, shipwrecks and drownings. Homer called them sirens in the Odyssey, who lured sailors to their deaths. They have been depicted in Etrurian sculptures, in Greek epics and in bas-reliefs in Roman tombs. In 1493, Christopher Columbus even reported seeing mermaids on his voyage to the Caribbean. But could our concept of a mermaid actually have originated from a real medical disorder? Siren Amelia, named after the mythical Greek sirens and also known as mermaid syndrome, is a rare and fatal congenital malformation characterised by fusion of the lower limbs. The condition results in what looks like a single limb, resembling a fishtail leading some to question whether ancient cases of the condition may have influenced legends of the past. 
It is known, for example, that ancient descriptions of sea monsters derived from sightings of real-life species, such as whales, giant squid and walruses, which were rarely seen and little understood at the time. According to the Mail Online, medical historian Lindsay Fitzharris from Oxford University and author of the blog The Chirurgeon's Apprentice, has been tracking back references of the condition in historical texts. However, the earliest known mention he could find was in a four-volume atlas published in 1891. There is nothing that hints at how medical practitioners understood Cyromenelia in early periods. Cyromenelia occurs when the umbilical cord fails to form two arteries leaving only enough blood supply for one limb. Sadly, due to severe urogenital and gastrointestinal malformations, babies born with the disorder rarely survive longer than a few days. However, with advances in surgical techniques, there have now been a few cases of sufferers living into their teenage years. Among the survivors of the rare condition is a Peruvian girl named Milagros Seron, whose first name means miracles, but friends and family affectionately refer to her as the Little Mermaid. In 2006, a team of specialists successfully separated the legs of the then two-year-old. While Malagros is living a full and active life, she will need ongoing surgery to correct complications associated with her kidneys, digestive and neurogenital systems. Whether or not the congenital condition may have influenced stories of women with fish-like tails will never really be known. Nevertheless, the likeness between the two has had one positive effect. It has helped children suffering from Cyrenomelia to feel proud of their resemblance to the beautiful and mythical beings described in our ancient past and which has persisted through popular media to the modern day. that you're all awake. From the mentalfloss.com Why is an iron lever called a crowbar? By Kara Kovalchik The ornithological term for that all-purpose prying tool, hitman weapon, dates back to at least around 1386, when an alliterative poem mentioned workmen putting prizes to the corners of a container with crows of iron. It is believed that the sharp angled end of the tool resembled a bird's beak, and of all the birds that flocked around those areas populated by humans, the crow was observed as the most adept at using its beak as a tool. Even though William Shakespeare mentions the gadget in Act 5 of Romeo and Juliet, go hence and get me an iron crow, and bring it straight unto my cell. Today in the UK, folks usually leave the bird out of it, and refer to it as a pry bar. And also from thementalfloss.com, a story by Rick Marshall. What are the coloured circles on food packages? There's a lot of information crammed onto food packaging these days. And along with all of the helpful stuff like nutritional data and ingredients, there's also the mysterious multicoloured row of circles or squares that serves a very important purpose for the printer. Referred to as the printer's colour blocks or process control patches, This grid of colour swatches indicates which hues of ink were used to produce the design on the package. The printer checks these coloured circles or squares to determine whether a package conforms to the necessary colour scheme for the product. In the case of any problems, the colour blocks let both the human and computerised printers know if a deficiency or surplus of colour caused the issue. 
The colour blocks are usually pictured as circles on most bagged products and squares on boxed goods, with the most common being black, cyan, magenta and yellow, since they're the basis of most colours produced by printers. If the bulk of the package is printed in one or two other colours, they'll usually turn up in their own blocks called spot colours too. Bags of Cheetos, for example, will almost always have at least one orange block, but usually two or more in different hues. If you don't see a set of colour blocks on your bag of chips or box of cookies, you don't need to worry. The decision to include this element is an option, not a rule, though most large-scale mass-produced products have some variation of colour blocks on their packages. Some companies also crop off the colour blocks during the packaging process. Oh, and if you see the colour blocks, you'll probably find a symbol that looks like crosshairs of a rifle scope somewhere on the package too. These register marks or position marks are used to align all of the colours printed on the packaging. Yet another helpful tool for the printer, but not really of any use to the consumers. Reel in the Flickering Light An original story by Sean Tate One of the listeners to the Mysteries Abound podcast I awoke to find myself alone and wandering down a path that was not known to me. How I had come upon this path I cannot say. I had been asleep and dreaming behind a closed doors in the confines of my own home only moments ago. My initial instinct was to panic, but I remained calm and collected and carried on in the only direction at my disposal, forward. Nothing seemed to stir around me, not the sound of a bird or the rustling of leaf against leaf. I carried on, taking in my surroundings. Dense forestation as far as the eye could see. The forest floor was littered with fresh and discoloured leaves, but made no sound as my feet came down upon them. It was hard to keep track of time here. My watch, stuck on the midnight hour, left me guessing. I paused for a brief moment to catch my breath when I noticed a flickering light in the distance. Since there was no other option available to me, I proceeded forward, with the hope of finding a way out of this claustrophobic place. As I made my way towards this light that seemed to fluctuate as though some powerful gust of wind was at it from all sides, I could only guess it was wind but couldn't be sure, since not a sound could be heard. I continued forward for some time until I came upon two paths diverging. One was well worn and looked as though many a boot had walked this way. The other could have easily been overlooked had it not been for the other. The well-worn path seemed to lead towards this light, and it made sense to me to take this path and forsake the other. No vegetation seemed to grow underfoot. It was like the ground beneath me was sterile, and could offer no sustenance to any plant life, no matter how hardy it be. I took the well-worn path and carried on. The going was easy at first, but soon the trees started to close in around me. It was as though they had a mind of their own and were purposely trying to hinder my advancement. While hindering my progress in moving forward, they gave me no option of turning back. I fought my way through the branches and found myself in a clearing. The clearing was no better than the forest. It was devoid of any vegetation and earthly creature. I looked behind me to find the trees had interlocked to form a natural wall. I was transfixed by this amazing feat. Never before had I seen nature act this way. Something unnatural was at work. I turned and continued my advance towards the flickering. I could see in the distance that this light was coming from the left-hand window of an old tower house, no more than five stories tall. 
It only seemed to be a short walk away. I reached the door and with little effort forced it open. Upon entering I noticed the place was pitch black, but had no difficulty in seeing. The place had fallen into disrepair and there was little sign of the previous occupants. Had there been moonlight this night, it would have shone through the holes that had started to appear in the roof. Finding no one on the ground floor, I began to make my way upstairs. The stairs looked sturdy, but I still took care to watch my footing. Having reached the first floor, I began to look around, hoping to find anyone, but my hope was slim. I noticed that stairs leading up to the next floor were down the end of the hallway. I proceeded towards them, but not before I checked every door along this floor. Every door held tight. Just when I thought it would open, something forced it closed. I was about to make my way upstairs when someone or something stirred below. Was it footsteps? It sounded like hooves upon stone. That sound unnerved me, and with haste I made my way to the second floor. The second floor resembled the first, and I had the same success with the doors as I had below. I paused for a moment. There was that sound again, hooves upon stone. I was certain of it. They were making their way up the stairs that I had come up only moments ago. I was resolute. I would not be overwhelmed by what lurked below. I spent no time in examining the doors on the third or the fourth floor. I knew I would encounter the same resistance as the doors before. I had reached the fifth floor. Behind one of these doors held the source of the flickering light. I quickly went to the first handle within my reach, but not even a budge. The handle refused to turn. The same with the next one, and the next. My hope was waning. The hooves had quickened their pace and were advancing towards me. They had just come onto this floor. At long last I reached the desired door. It opened with ease and I gladly entered. The hooves that followed me were now outside, and from underneath the door a shadowy form was projected onto the floor within. How? I cannot tell, since there was no light source outside to cause this. I took in my surroundings. This room was different from what I'd seen below. It was a bedchamber, neatly kept. No sign of any disrepair was to be seen. And there on the windowsill was the source of the light. A candle but it looked as if it had just been lit. There was no sign of any wax dripping down the side. It was in a constant state of perfection. There was no evidence of an occupant here. The bed looked freshly made and nothing seemed out of place. I made my way towards the bed and sat on its edge. The pillows looked welcoming, so I lay my head down and closed my eyes. It was foolish of me, I know, but weariness was getting the better of me. I closed my eyes and dreamt. I didn't think possible, given the dreamlike state I was already in. I started to stir. I felt like some unknown weight was pressing down on my chest, getting heavier and heavier. My arms lay limply at my side. They were of no use to me. Hooves. There was a sound of hooves again. I felt breath upon me. It sounded as though it was being expelled from large nostrils in short bursts. The pressure increased and still I could not wake up. Please, anyone, I tried to yell. Please wake me, for the love of God, wake me. But no words would pass my lips. I was alone. The pressure kept increasing and increasing and increasing. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. Remember we have a Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy or click on the link at the show notes at Origins.info. 
I'd like to say thank you to these people who have given a donation to the podcast recently. Your help is greatly appreciated, everyone. So it's a big thank you to... Sean Yarnell, Finn Eckberg Christensen, David Whiting, Brad Bogle, Francine Lane, Adam Rossi, Jeff Chapman and Scott McClory. And to bring the podcast to a close, The Strange Mystery of Saint Germain, The Immortal Count. And this is from thecoolinterestingstuff.com. Is it possible for a person to live forever? That is what some people are claiming about a historical figure known as the Count de Saint Germain. His origins are still unclear. Some records date his birth to the late 1600s although some believe that his longevity reaches back to the time of Christ. He has appeared many times throughout history, even as recently as the 1970s, always appearing to be about 45 years old. He was known by many of the most famous figures of European history, including Casanova, Madame de Pompadour, Voltaire, King Louis XV, Catherine the Great, Anton Mesmer, George Washington and others. He has also been linked to a number of occult movements and conspiracy theories. Who was this mysterious man? Are the stories of his immortality mere legend and folklore? Or is it possible that he really did discover the secret of eternal life? The date of birth for Saint Germain is unknown, although most accounts say he was born in the 1690s. A genealogy compiled by Annie Besant for her co-authored book, The Comte de Saint-Germain, The Secret of Kings, asserts that he was born the son of Francis Ricosi II, Prince of Transylvania, in 1690. What we do know for certain is that he was an accomplished alchemist, which means he could turn heaps of metal into pure gold. If that wasn't a neat enough trick already, the Count also claimed to have discovered the secret of eternal life. Between 1740 and 1780, Saint Germain, who was quite a celebrity in those days, travelled extensively throughout Europe, and in all that time, never seemed to age. Those who met him were astonished by his many abilities and peculiarities, like, he spoke twelve languages, He could play the violin like a virtuoso. He was an accomplished painter. Whenever he travelled, he set up an elaborate laboratory, presumably for his alchemy work. He seemed to be a man of great wealth, but was not known to have any bank accounts. If it was due to his ability to transmute base metals into gold, he never performed the feat for observers. He dined often with friends because he enjoyed their company, but was rarely seen to eat food in public. He subsisted, it said, was on a diet of oatmeal. He prescribed recipes for the removal of facial wrinkles and for dyeing hair. He loved jewels and much of his clothing, including his shoes, was studded with them. He had perfected a technique for painting jewels. He claimed to be able to fuse several small diamonds into one large one. He also said he could make pearls grow to incredible sizes. He has been linked to several secret societies, including the Rosicrucians, Freemasons, Society of Asiatic Brothers, the Knights of Light, the Illuminati and the Order of the Templars. Officially Saint Germain died in 1784, but of course dying equals having a bad day when you're called the Immortal Count. He would continue to be seen throughout the 19th and 20th century. In 1785 he was seen in Germany with Anton Mesmer, the pioneer hypnotist. Some claim that it was Saint Germain who gave Mesmer the basic ideas for hypnotism and personal magnetism. Official records of Freemasonry show that they chose Saint Germain as their representative for a convention in 1785. 
After the taking of the Bastille in the French Revolution in 1789, the Comtesse d'Ardemer said she had a lengthy conversation with Count de Saint-Germain. He allegedly told her of France's immediate future, as if he knew what was to come. In 1821 she wrote, I have seen Saint-Germain again, each time to my amazement. I saw him when the Queen, Antoinette, was murdered, on the 18th of Brumaire, on the day following the death of the Duc de Angers in January 1815, and on the eve of the murder of the Duc de Berry. The last time she saw him was in 1820, and each time he looked to be a man no older than his mid-forties. Voltaire, the 18th century philosopher, perhaps best summed up the Count of Saint-Germain. This is a man who never dies and who knows everything. Whether that's true or not, only history knows. Comte de Saint-Germain and Richard Chanfray, the man who claimed to be the Count in the 1970s. Chanfray appeared on television with his claim and supposedly changed lead into gold. Chanfray committed suicide in Saint-Tropez in 1983, but now claims have been made that no body was discovered, just a suicide note.